What we're doing today, church, is sort of a spin-off. I know that you know, if you've been here for any duration of time whatsoever, we're going through the book of Deuteronomy. And not only are we in the book of Deuteronomy, but we're currently in a series within a series. We are going through the Ten Commandments. But last week, we looked at that fifth commandment that is found in Deuteronomy 5, namely, honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you in the land that I am giving you, says the Lord. So we went through that last week, and I felt, I felt a little, I didn't feel real good about that message, so I was gonna do, I'm going to do it again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is that kind of topic that regardless of how well you do on the topic, how much time you spend on the topic, you always feel like there's more. You always feel like there's something else that can be said. And so what I wanted to do is pivot, if you would, and talk to you today under this title. Gospel parenting. Gospel parenting. As Ozzy read, we were looking at Psalm 127, but I've got a myriad of verses that I want to share with you. So you don't have to necessarily get too comfortable there. I hope you have your outlines ready and your pen ready. And if you're ready to begin this morning, say amen. amen. As I said, my gospel for you, t- or sorry, my message for you today is under the title Gospel Parenting. And, and as the title might suggest to you, my goal this morning is simply to reveal and teach what the Bible has to say to those Christian people who have either, one, been blessed with children, or two, have been placed in a position of influence over young people. Not that those two options are synonymous, but the principles are applied and can be received, I think, more or less in the same way. And the reason both instances is important is simple. There are people who have a strong opinion about the direction that the world is going. But they're not necessarily influencing the next generation for Christ. There are a lot of people who watch what's happening in their schools and on the news and the members of their family out in public, and they go, what's going on with the world? The world is in a terrible situation, but they're not using their influence to bring God glory. So I hope that you'll receive this today. My hope and my prayer is that when we finish here, we will be excited and committed to impact young people for Jesus. Let me begin by saying this. I love banana bread. <laughs> I love banana bread. But but banana bread banana bread it doesn't just happen. Banana bread is the result of a process. Okay, follow me here. It requires certain things. Let's call them ingredients. And they have to be combined in a certain process and in a certain measure in order that the end result would be banana bread. You need bananas. You need eggs and butter. You need sugar, baking soda, vanilla extract. And there are other things, too, like walnuts, and, and you see, my brother-in-law, who apparently is on the same level as I am in my mother's heart, <laughs> he likes banana bread without nuts. And there has been more than one occasion, D, when a banana bread has ended up at my house and it doesn't have nuts. 
And I can't tell you the havoc this does to my soul. (laughs) But I want to say this. I want to turn a corner and, and make an important point. As far as I'm concerned, banana bread must be made with nuts. Okay? But whether you have nuts in your banana bread or not... You don't necessarily need nuts in your banana bread to have banana bread. There are some ingredients, however, that are non-negotiable. And I think on that we can agree. And in like fashion, we may or may not see all the things the same when it comes to Christian parenting. But as far as I'm concerned, if we're going to raise our children in the gospel, we might agree or disagree on this or that, but there are some things we are not allowed to disagree on. There are some things that are absolutely necessary if this thing is going to turn out to be what we would call gospel parenting. Amen. (laughs) So I want to talk to you today about gospel parenting. And I want to do that by way of what I believe are four indispensable ingredients. If we're going to be successful at gospel parenting, we are going to require a certain process and in certain measure four necessary ingredients. Grace, instruction, forgiveness, and discipline. So I want to begin this morning with our first point or ingredient, which is this, grace. First and foremost, gospel parenting includes the ingredient of grace. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, then you probably could give to me a definition of grace. Now, if you can't, that's fine. I'm going to give to you a definition right now, and it goes like this. Grace is undeserved or unmerited favor. Grace is undeserved or unmerited favor. And that is to say, when you receive blessings and kindness and love and fortune from someone, but you can't earn that disposition, that is grace. And as sinners, we cannot earn that disposition from God. We can't earn his love and favor and blessing. We have God's love and favor and blessing by virtue of this fact. Say amen if you're listening. God is gracious. God is gracious, and Jesus is the means by which we enjoy God's grace. Let me share a handful of verses with you from the Bible. They're going to come up on the screen, the first of which is Psalm 86, 15. In Psalm 86, 15, the Bible says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, it says, But God said to me, this is Paul saying, God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. And that is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that one may boast. 
So we learn here that God is gracious, that his grace is sufficient for all of our needs, and thirdly, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, how does this translate to gospel parenting, church? How does this translate into gospel parenting? And that's a great question. When we as sinners receive blessings from God, which we don't deserve, which we, which we receive by virtue of the fact that God is gracious, and we receive these blessings each and every day, then we are the recipients of grace, and as recipients of grace, God has called us to be grace givers. In other words, as recipients of grace, as people who have been made aware of this fact that God has been good to me, not because I'm good, but because he's good, and his love through me, or to me, through Jesus Christ, then I need to appreciate this fact, I need to be gracious to others. Let me share with you a couple of points. First, God is gracious. Under this idea, we've learned already that first, God is gracious, and this is important because if God isn't gracious, then we're all doomed. I hope you can receive that. If God were not gracious, we would all be doomed. And if we're not doomed because God is gracious, amen, then our children shouldn't be doomed either. Our children should feel like we're approachable. Our children should feel that they can come to us and dump on us ugly sin. Just like we come to God and dump on God ugly sin, knowing that God is gracious. If our children cannot approach us and say, I have made a huge mistake, then it is because our children know we aren't gracious. They should be able to approach us. They should be able to talk to us. They should be able to reveal their feelings and their thoughts to us just like we do to God in prayer. You might ask, what if their feelings and thoughts are against God? Or, or what if their feelings and thoughts are wrong? We'll get to that in a minute. But hear me. If you're not gracious, then you're not approachable. And if you're not approachable, your relationship with your child is compromised. And so is their future. If you're not approachable in love and grace, then it doesn't matter how right you might be about everything else. You're wrong. Now, in the world's eyes, you might be fantastic. But if you fail to be a model of God's grace in your family, in God's eyes, you have failed. It doesn't matter what any other book says, what any other counselor says, what any other psychologist says, or what your parents say. The only barometer for your approval and acceptance is God. And as a parent, you must pursue God's acceptance 
in the way you parent if you would be approved. Secondly, I want you to see this, that God's grace is sufficient. We learned, first of all, Psalm 86, 15, that God is gracious. And then secondly, we also learned from from the testimony of God to Paul that his grace is sufficient. Listen, God's grace is sufficient for us, church. That means it's enough. That means when we have a relationship with God, we have no other real needs. God satisfies our needs. And I don't care how challenging parenting is. Parenting can be challenging. But I don't care how challenging parenting is. God's grace is sufficient. I don't care how prepared you were for family. God's grace is sufficient. I don't care how confused you might be right now about the direction of your life and the decisions you need to make or how well or how poorly you have parented up until this point. I want to tell you something. Say amen if you're listening. God's grace is sufficient for you. Sufficient for what? I'm going to give you three things God's grace is sufficient for. God's grace is sufficient to renew, to restore, and to redeem. To renew, to restore, and to redeem. Some of you are here, and you are the parents of children that are in their 20s, in their 30s, and their 40s. And your attitude about parenting at this point is, well, they're adults. No. Absolutely not. You're still a parent. You're just a parent of an adult now. Why is it that so many Christians, once their children become adults, let's say they have walked away from the idea of the faith, or they're not attending church at all, or, or, or they are living in their marriage or in their own parenthood in a way that doesn't bring honor to God, maybe doesn't bring honor to the way that you raise them, but in your mind they're adults, so it's laissez-faire. Gospel parenting does not stop. Gospel parenting means you have a disposition toward your child that says God's grace is sufficient. And that means that God's grace is sufficient for every single season. Not just when they're 5 or 15, but when they're 25 and 35. And it doesn't mean that you approach them when they're 35, like they're 15. That's a good way to lose that argument, Mom. It doesn't mean that you turn yourself off because they're not living their life the way that you wish they would, Dad. It means that you, in the sufficiency of God's grace, meet them at the season they are in because God's grace does not quit. It's sufficient. And you say, how am I going to accomplish now what I failed to accomplish then? I'll tell you why. God's grace is sufficient to renew, to restore, and to redeem. And if you're not parenting that way, I've got to ask you a blunt question. Do you believe it? Do you believe that his grace is sufficient? If you're not behaving that way, then it doesn't really matter what you say you believe. What you're demonstrating is a faithlessness in the sufficiency of God's grace. And may that not happen to us, church. Thirdly, 
I want you to note that God's grace is salvific. This is what we learned in, in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Salvific is not a word we use very often. It's a word that perhaps you're just hearing for the first time. It's an adjective, salvific. It means leading to salvation. God's grace is salvific. What's that mean? It means that it leads us to salvation. God calls us to salvation in his grace. And as parents... We should be graciously leading our children to salvation in Jesus. If your kids come home with A's and they're not bullies and they take out the trash the first time, but they don't know Jesus, nothing matters. Nothing matters. Some of you have raised good kids who don't love Jesus. And it doesn't matter if their grades are great, if they do their chores the first time they ask, and if they're polite to their elders, if they're going to hell when they die. Get your priorities straight. Gospel parenting is always leading children to Jesus. But we believe that if our rules are abided by, then we're winning. No! Your rules are secondary. God's rules come first. And God says, believe in my son. We should always be leading our children to Jesus. We should always be leading our children towards salvation. That's our job as parents who have been influenced by the grace of God, namely to influence others. And who would we influence before our own children, amen? This is the height of hypocrisy. When we, outside of our house, are these godly examples and bastions of God's grace, but at the kitchen table, we're not. We must flood our houses with God's grace. We must flood our houses with God's love. Not with traditionalism, not with acceptable norms. We must flood our houses with God's grace. And as recipients of God's grace, his expectation of us is that we will parent in his grace. There's one example that I would like to give to you of how God does this with his own son, Jesus. And you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to iterate this story to you. It's one with which most of you are very familiar. And this is what he says. This is my son, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. Remember that? Jesus is baptized, and a voice from heaven, from the Father, coming toward the Son, says, This is my son, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. And I want to share with you, parents, three things that we learn from God in this conversation with his son. Number one, acknowledgement. This is my son. Secondly, affection, whom I love. And thirdly, affirmation, in whom I'm well pleased. Acknowledgement, this is my son. Affection, whom I love. And thirdly, affirmation, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen, I guarantee every single parent in here or every single person who has influence over a young person's life can find a place in one of these three points where they're falling short. 
Your kids, for example, know that they are the offspring of you. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't every now and then put your hand on them and say, I'm your dad and you're my daughter. I'm your dad and you're my son. There is something to be said about recognizing identity. God tells the world, that's my son. He acknowledges him. That's my son. But he doesn't stop there. He also demonstrates publicly affection. Affection. Now, now most of you are, 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 we have a very huggy church, and you know that if you're anywhere near me for any amount of time, I'm probably going to touch you. That's just, that's just part of my thing. I'm an affectionate person. But, but God literally says this. Right? Because God is not corporeal. God is spirit. He's not in body. But while Jesus is here, he speaks from heaven and he says, that's my son. Acknowledgement, affection. I love him. Your kids need to hear you say, I love you. That's what grace is. Well, they know I, no, no, no. If any relationship ever existed in which I love you was unnecessary, it was this one. The son knew the father loved him. But there's a demonstration in his grace of this love. Acknowledgement. You are my son. This is my son. Affection. Whom I love. And then affirmation. He brings me pleasure in whom I'm well pleased. That's what, he brings me pleasure. Parents, your kids need to know that they make you smile. Don't go days without telling your kids when they get home, I thought about you today and you brought me so much joy just thinking about you. And they'll go, what? What? That's not relevant. It's not relevant. Because as parents, we think, I did, this, I did this heightened and godly thing, and I'm expecting a certain, a certain return. But you know, God does a lot of gracious things to you, and you fail to return to him the way that you ought to. Be gracious. You might not immediately get the response that you want from this relationship, but I promise you, if you acknowledge your children, if you affirm your children, if you... Uh, sorry, if you demonstrate affection and you affirm your children, then you will be the recipient of these positive results. But in order to do this, you have to be gracious. It's embarrassing how many immature parents exist today when they get in this tit-for-tat measurement with their kids. Your kids did not ask to be brought into this world. Don't take all your issues that you had with your parents or all your issues that you have because of broken relationships and put them on your kid's back and tell them, you need to behave a certain way and then I'll love you. Shame on you if that's the way you're parenting. So many of the issues that we have from our kids are not a lack of discipline. It's a lack of grace. It's a lack of love. 
If anyone around your family doesn't know how crazy you are about your kids, you're dropping the ball. You should be bragging on your kids. You should be publicly telling them, I love you, I'm thinking about you. There should be absolutely no doubt whatsoever when it comes to how your children think about you, about your grace. Do you ever wonder whether or not God loves you? If you do, your theology is bad. You need to be back here on a regular basis. But neither should your children ever wonder, even if they have fouled up. And we'll get to this. We'll get to this. But even if they have fouled up and they bring you a giant bucket of dirt and they go, look at what a mess I've made, they need to know that they can come to you, not because you won't correct them. We'll get to this. But because you are gracious. But because you are gracious. First and foremost, ingredient of gospel parenting, mom, dad, we must be gracious. Secondly, I want to acknowledge instruction. Another ingredient that's important to gospel parenting is instruction. Throughout the Bible, we are reminded that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our mind. That's Matthew chapter 22, verse 38. But we're also taught that we should pursue wisdom. For example, as we're reading right now in the book of Proverbs, we should be pursuing wisdom. Let me share with you a verse, one with which I know you're Familiar, Proverbs 22, verse 6. It's going to come up here on the screen. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, by the way, let's not get you know fussy about the pronoun issue here. This is an older man writing to a younger man. So we can switch this and make it feminine if we want. And the principle is exactly the same. This is not... Something that is reserved specifically for men. Train up your child in the way that she should go. And when she is old, she will not depart from it. The principle is the same. The pronoun is not what's important. Now, this is a somewhat known verse, as I mentioned. One with which most of us are probably familiar. But our tendency is to hurry toward the application in this verse. Namely, that even when our kids wander off from the right path, they will eventually return. That's the application. But I don't want to focus on the application. Everybody wants the reward of the application, but they don't want the responsibility of the job. I don't want to focus on the application. I want to rewind to the first part of this verse, and in particular, especially, I want us to look at the first word of the verse, which is what? Train. Train. It's a Hebrew word that means to dedicate. It means to narrow the path. Well, you know what happens when you train, when you dedicate, when you narrow the path? You ensure success. The New Living Translation puts Proverbs 22, verse 6 like this. Teach children how they should live, and they will remember it all their life. You see, gospel parenting is about training and teaching our kids. 
It's about training and teaching them because training and teaching is required for success. Amen? No one is born and trips and falls into success. Success is the product of responsibility done over a course of time. It's not accidental. Both in Christ and in the world, training and teaching are required. Train them so they don't fail. Teach them so that they understand. Dedicate them so that they know who they belong to. Narrow the path for them so that they don't get lost along the way. Friends, that's what Proverbs 22.6 is saying. To put it bluntly, Proverbs 22.6 is not some sort of charm or spell or incantation that you simply say after you blew it as a parent. Proverbs 22.6 is not some sort of spell that you can throw over your kids after you failed to raise them the way you were supposed to. If you do it incorrectly, correction is not promised in Proverbs 22.6. There is hope, but you're not going to find it in Proverbs 22. What Proverbs 22 is saying is that if you do it right, if they have some bumps along the way, if you did it right, they're going to come back. It's not saying that if you didn't do it right, it doesn't really matter, they're going to come back. That's not what it's saying. It's saying you have to train You have to train them. You have to teach them. Now, what's also interesting about this verse is, and this is important to note, that training varies, doesn't it? Depending on the sport, depending on the athlete, training varies. And it's the same with children. You can't assume that you can raise every single one of your children the same and have the same success with all of them. I know that this is mind-blowing to some of you, Because you figured, same womb. No. No, every kid is different. Every single kid is different. And it is an error to parent them the same way and expect the same result. Every single kid is different. And that's what we need to learn here as well, that when when the proverb is saying, train up a child in the way that they should go, it's not only talking about gospel principles, like we need to raise these kids up in the gospel, yes, but it's also saying that I should train up the child, Sarah, I'm just going to use you for an example here since you're here, I should train up Sarah the way that she should go. I should not train up Sarah the way that Hannah should go. Can you receive this? Your kids are different. And your responsibility as a parent, it's not your kid's responsibility. Your responsibility as a parent is to find out what makes your child tick. And then exploit the living daylights out of it. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. There are some things that I can do or say to Hannah, and it makes no effect, no change to Sarah at all whatsoever, and vice versa, because they're different. They are different kids. 
And it's your responsibility to know if your kid needs to put their foot under your leg on the couch while you watch a show. If that's what they need to know, that you love them and you, and you accept them and you're gracious with them. And then there's other kids, I don't need you to touch me. I need you to have a conversation with me. And I need to talk about the same thing for 15 minutes without interruption. And if that's the case, then shut up. Because what you're communicating with, to them with your constant interruptions is that their feelings are not valid. And in order to validate their feelings and validate their importance to you, you need to just be quiet and give them, listen to this, it's an amazing, amazing idea. Give them your time. I know they have a roof and I know they have clothes and you told them microwave leftovers and they're fed. Your kids require more than that. Find what makes your kids tick and exploit it. Why wouldn't you? This is not for anyone's ill. This is for everyone's good. So, for example, if you're raising a boy, for the love of God, raise him to be a boy. It's strange that I have to say this today, but I'm going to. If you have a girl, raise her to be a girl. This doesn't mean that boys can't have interests that are similar to the interests that girls have. And it doesn't mean that girls don't have interests that are more similar or commonly accepted among boys. Girls play sports and guys love poetry. It happens. It's not a big deal. He's still a boy. And she's still a girl. Raise them according to their gender. Here's another idea. If your child is a bookworm and loves to read and loves to think and loves to have conversations, don't force them into a sport so that they get bullied and feel like the biggest failure of life. And the flip side is if you have a child who comes out of the womb and they're like, where's my bat and ball and I'm ready to play. Don't say you can't play any sports. You need to sit in a classroom for nine hours a day and I want to see at least three hours of homework. And by the way, you're going to go through college and get an MA, and I really want lots of education from you. That's not what they're designed for. That's not how God made them. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have standards in the classroom. I'm not saying you shouldn't have standards in your academics when it comes to the life of your child. But what I am saying is that you may have a child who gets C pluses after giving it all they've got. And if that is their situation, if they get C pluses after giving everything that they've got, listen to me, they are successful. There are some kids, and again, to use Sarah as an example, Sarah is, she's an incredibly intelligent person. She gets things the first time. Me? Huh. I'm st I still don't get it. She can be pushed academically. If you push me academically, I'd crack in 10 places. I'm not that kind of person. God didn't make me that way. I have to work very hard to be a decent student. She doesn't. Find what makes your kids successful and help them and encourage them and build them up. And know this. Some of your kids are going to get A's and they're not going to try. And there are other kids who are going to get C pluses, and they're going to rock a 2.5 or a 2.8 their entire school career, and they're going to work for that 2.8, and you need to say, this is my son whom I love, 
who brings me pleasure. Can you receive that? Train up a child in the way that they should go. In the way that they should go, parents. Not in the way that you think they should go. You've got to know who God gave you. And they're going to reflect some of you, and they're going to reflect some of your spouse. But you need to know who God gave you, because at the end of the day, they're an extension of you, but they're not you. Who did God give you? Find what makes them tick. Find what makes them happy. And train them in that way. Church, we've got to give our kids instruction. Part of our responsibility as gospel parents is to know our children. We are responsible to know our children. And to know our kids is an indispensable part of instruction. Because if we aim at instructing them, but we don't know them, we can instruct them wrong, we can instruct them unnecessarily, we can instruct them, you name it. Every bit of the instruction that we give to our kids will be all the more valuable and successful if we apply the right instruction to the right kids. You hear what I'm saying? If we don't know our kids, then the, pro- the probability is that we're going to either instruct them the way that's easiest for us, number one, or number two, and in some of your cases, sadly, the way that you were instructed. Some of you don't want to do what your parents did, and I don't blame you for that. I understand that. But what I want you to understand is that we teach what we know, but we duplicate what we are. So it doesn't really matter what your parents taught you. If they did a bad job and you aren't aiming at becoming a better person so that you're a better parent, you're going to do exactly what your parents did. That's the probability. Because what gets duplicated is what we see. Decide today to know your kids and instruct them in the way that they should go. If you don't, you're either going to fall back on what you saw done by your own parents, or you're going to instruct them in a way that isn't best for them. I want to say this also before going to the next point. Just some thoughts that you can jot down if you want to so that we have an understanding of what is and isn't, okay? Training isn't tolerance. Training isn't allowance. Training isn't enablement. Some of you as parents are so bent on being your kids' friends that you have completely forfeited your authority as a parent. And you will never get it back. You've lost the battle. You do that long enough you never get it back. You might get it to a degree. You might get it on occasion. But once you decide to be your kid's friend before they are mature and young adults where there can be a friendship of some value, if you are raising them up in that important season of life when they are the most receptive and vulnerable, as a friend instead of a parent, you are forfeiting 
so much more than you even realize. Training means to train. It's not enablement. It's not allowance. It's not tolerance. Training means to train. To narrow the path, the original Hebrew suggests, which means if we narrow the path for our kids, then we're focusing their vision, we're focusing their purpose, and we are increasing the probability of their success. I like what Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Fathers or mothers, do not provoke your kids to anger. Don't frustrate them. Don't nag them until they're literally rattled. Don't put expectations on them that are so unreasonable that they feel frustrated every time they see you. Be gracious. Yes, instruct them, but don't provoke them to frustration. They're your kids. Don't provoke them to anger. Listen to what he says. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There you go. Bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. Mom, Dad, you have a moral and spiritual obligation and responsibility to teach your kids about Jesus. That's where the instruction starts. When you sit down with your kids and on that rocking chair, everybody needs a rocking chair when they first get started. If you don't have one, let us know. We'll talk to the benevolent guys and see if we can... See if we can make something happen. Maybe we'll steal one from the uh, Cracker Barrel. Okay. <laughs> You've got to sit in that rocking chair, and you need to hold that baby, and you need to rock that baby, and that baby's ooing and aahing and pooping and drinking milk and nothing else, but you need to say, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And that conversation needs to happen every day until you die or they die. Because gospel parenting is about grace and instruction. But that's not all. Gospel parenting is not only about grace and instruction, but when the instruction goes wrong, and does it go wrong? Oh, boy. When the instruction goes wrong, thirdly, you need this ingredient, forgiveness. Forgiveness. This is the third important ingredient to gospel parenting. That's what forgiveness is. And it doesn't follow instruction accidentally. As I said before, instruction takes time, it takes effort, and it takes energy. And, and did I say that it takes time? <laughs> and I'm going to be honest with you here. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we mean so well and we just blow it. We blow it epically. Sometimes we over-instruct when we should be taking it easy. And sometimes we under-instruct when we should be taking advantage of a learning opportunity. Amen? So forgiveness is going to be an important part of your relationship with your children. And it will help them better understand God's love. It will help them better understand God's grace and subsequently, it will also play an important role in their development, not only as your children, but more importantly, as his children. I want to share with you Colossians chapter 3. I think I have it here on the screen. Yes. 
Colossians chapter 3. You can read it with your eyes as I read aloud. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, We should bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I don't know about you guys, but when I hear verses 13 and 14 of Colossians 3, it sounds gorgeous to me. It sounds beautiful. I don't know anyone who would say, I don't want that in my house. I don't know any who would say, yeah, that sounds weak. I don't want that. I don't want grace. I don't want to bind everything together with love. I don't know anyone who says that. I read this, and I think to myself, this is the greatest family I could imagine. Not, they're bearing with one another. And, and when something goes wrong, they forgive one another. And, and they're not just forgiving one another just to say, ah, I'm going to forget about that. They're, they're, they're binding all this together with love. And we know what 1 Corinthians 13 says, love rejoices in the truth. So forgiveness is there and love is there, but that's not because they're just letting whatever happened happen and they're just saying, well, he's my kid, I love him anyway. No, 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 no. Love has standards. And forgiveness has a definition. Let me say it like this. Forgiveness and forgetfulness are not the same. In fact, I believe so strongly in this that, that I will say it this way. I believe that God, when, when God sees that we begin to forget about something that we were supposed to forgive, sometimes he'll bring it back up and put it in our face and he'll say, see, you haven't forgiven them yet. See, you haven't forgiven them yet. And this can happen in any way. This could happen in aisle 13 in Publix. I don't know what's in aisle 13 anymore because they keep switching the store around. I can't find anything. Right, you go in there, you're like, it's going to be 50, and it's 250. You get me out of this store right now, looking for the walnuts so my mother can make banana bread. <laughs> and the reality of the matter is sometimes God says, I want to teach you something. I want to teach you something that you didn't do that I did for you. You haven't forgiven this person. Forgetting and forgiving are not the same. Now, forgetting is not a horrible thing, but the idea is this. Forgiveness means that you're no longer holding someone responsible for their wrong. It doesn't mean that if somebody has stolen from you, you lend them money. Okay, this is a very diluted version of Christianity. It means you treat them like they've never done. No, no that's not what that means at all. No. As far as penalty is concerned, you, I'm not going to penalize you for that anymore. But I'm not letting you anywhere near my wallet. Okay? Let, let's be reasonable about this. I'm not going to penalize you for it, but I'm not moving forward going to entrust my money to you. The idea is this, guys. Forgiveness means, you remember when you did that thing wrong? Yeah, I'm not going to make you pay for that. I love what Jesus says, forgive our debts as we forgive those who have a debt. If you're a parent, I'm certain you have broken your child. There are promises unmet. There are expectations unfulfilled. 
You've hurt them. You've disappointed them. You've come up short. You've offended them. And you need to acknowledge that. And you need to be Christian enough to say, you remember when I lost my temper the other day and I said some words that I, sh- I had no business saying? I would like you to forgive me for that. Or in the beginning of the year when your kid says, I'm going to get an iPad for my birthday, and you go, I'm going to get you an iPad for your birthday, and the bills catch up, and Biden's president, and inflation's going like this. And the birthday comes, and you can't afford the $800, $900 iPad, and, and, and you can't get it, and they go, oh, I understand, and you need to go, hey, I made you a promise. And I couldn't fulfill the promise. I I hope you can forgive me. I'm going to do what I can to meet that promise. But I didn't meet that promise. I hope you can forgive me. We have to own this, guys. These are examples as parents that we have to own. But I'm going to flip this for a second, mom and dad. Just breathe for a minute. I've been hard on you. Take a breath. Young people, shut up and listen. All right? Your parents, I don't want to hear, I don't want you, some of you guys are punks, man. You got every, in 2023, you got it. Do you know that I rode a girl's bike for a while when I was a kid, spray painted it? I still have nightmares of that bike. (laughs) I grew up in a time when you did what you had to do to get done what needed to get done. Our kids don't know anything. Right? Guys, You are completely ignorant. And what's worse is you have an internet telling you that you're brilliant, and you're not. (laughs) You're not. You really aren't. The reality of the matter is you've got twice as much attitude as you you can carry. You know, like Top Gun, your your ego's writing checks, your body can't cash. Top Gun, I've seen that like 55 times. (laughs) Because whatever, America wins. Let's go. Bad guys lose all day long. Young people, you have so many things to take advantage of. Don't take advantage of your parents. Forgive your parents. And when you come home later than you said you were going to come home, or if you're still palling around with that guy that you said you weren't going to pal around with anymore, or if you're still fiddling with this dating situation that your parents said, hey, I'm not having any of that in my house, then you need to repent. And you need to say, you know what? I maybe don't agree with you, Mom, or I maybe don't agree with you, Dad, but I'm asking you to forgive me because this is what you said and I've done wrong. It's not just about your parents disappointing you. I'm gonna say something to your face and you need to hear me. You've disappointed them plenty. Plenty. You're a hot mess. And what's, and, and what's more, you're not only a hot mess, you're a hot mess with this net called parenting under you. So if you fall, they catch you every single time. You really don't know what consequences are. You need to be respectful to your parents, forgive them when they request it, but own your own stuff. 
And when you catch attitude and you're moody or you fail a test that we told you that you need to be studying for the next day and then you, you, instead you're on TikTok all night long and you go and you get a D plus and you come home, you bring a, don't bring a D plus in this house. I mean, some of you might be okay, but that's not okay in my house. Hey, you owe me. You owe me a grade. You're right. I'm sorry. I'll make it right. Will you forgive me? And that means, okay, I'm going to hold you to that. I'm releasing this debt. That's what forgiveness means. Now, I want to take it a step further, and I know this is going to be a little long today, but I want to take it a step further and say, it's not just about grades or who you're palling around with. Sometimes kids say stuff that just kill you, right? I mean, it starts when they're cute, like, you know, little man, okay, gorgeous, right? Angel, oh, he's so cute, and he likes me now, so, oh, Angel's so cute, oh, he's so cute. He's so... And then Angel's going to become two, he's going to learn da. Ma, and then no. (laughs) And every parent, when they first learn, they go, oh, this kid's telling me no. Mom, dad, listen, this is psychology 101. They're learning language. They're learning the weight of their words. You don't have to necessarily discipline them because they're learning how to use the word no. Now, rewind from forgiveness to instruction. You have some responsibility here. You need to teach them and help them understand that's phase one, though, right? No. Okay, honey, you are, yeah, the answer is yes. You're going to go over here and clean your toys. And then they get into the teens, and they go, I hate you. <sighs> Me? I'm like, oh, Dimey cried for days. Dimey cried for days. They hate me. They don't hate you. They're in a new season of life and learning how to use vocabulary, the weight of their words, the import of their words, and what really has value. And that requires instruction. But in the process of instruction, when your kids say something that really hurts you, or kids, when your parents say something that really hurts you, remember how God has forgiven you. And let forgiveness happen. So important. Let me share a couple, of, a couple of thoughts and we'll move to our final point. First, forgiveness doesn't mean that sin suddenly becomes acceptable or tolerable. Forgiveness does not mean that sin suddenly becomes acceptable or tolerable. I need you to hear me, and I know you know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Sin is sin is sin. I don't care if it's your son or daughter doing it. Sin is sin is sin. Don't negotiate on this point. If you're going to raise them up in grace, raise them up in instruction, raise them up with forgiveness, then know that in spite of all those decisions to raise them up in that way, it doesn't change the definition of what is right and wrong in God's eyes. Sin is sin, and God has expectations of his people, amen? And I'm going to say this to you, parents, and and I'm saying this in, in, in in a sense of encouragement, You're blowing it with the expectations of your kid. 
Some of you have no expectations of you. You can care if the, if the room is dirty, if their shoes are by the front door, if they eat when you want them to eat or they don't, you, you, grades, whatever happens, jobs, well, whatever. I mean, a, listen, if you have no expectations of your son or your daughter, you are making for their spouse an absolute nightmare of a person. Place expectations on your kids to make them who they are going to be in the future. Now, don't put on a five-year-old what you should put on a 15-year-old. But for the love of God, don't put on a 20-year-old what you would put on a five-year-old. We've got to grow these kids up. Same situation here, guys. God has expectations of us, and we should have expectations of our kids. What's wrong is wrong, and what is right and right. Forgiveness does not mean we accept the unacceptable. Also, to forgive doesn't mean to forget. And I've already mentioned this point, so I won't belabor it. But you have to remember that there are some things that are going to happen in your family. Oh, man, family is complicated. Oh, man, Thanksgiving. Oh, man, Christmas Eve for us is just, oh, pull. I'd rather pull a nail. Oh, man. But you got to forgive people. You might not forget. You may never forget, but you'll never be healthy if you don't forgive. Forgive people and put that weight down, okay? So listen, we've got grace. We've got instruction. Oh, we're going to blow it sometimes, so we're going to need some, in, some forgiveness. But our final ingredient this morning that I want to discuss in regards to gospel parenting is this, discipline. Discipline. I'm going to take my belt off to illustrate. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> discipline. Discipline. Now, I want, to read to a, I want to read to you a proverb, Proverbs 19.18. In Proverbs 19.18, it says this, the first part, so it would be like 19.18a. It would be just the first part of this verse. It says this, discipline your son or daughter, your child, while there is hope. Mm. Which suggests something, at least by principle. If you don't discipline your kid, you may pass an imaginary line that once it's passed, you're done. You miss the opportunity. You're not going to get it back. Discipline your child while there is hope. You know what discipline is. And just in case you don't, I'm going to give you the definition. This is the Merriam-Webster definition of discipline. Training that corrects, molds, or perfects the mental faculties or moral character. I'm going to read that again because I think you need to write it down. It might be something worth, worth noting. If I had put it up, you could just take a picture, but I blew it. Discipline is defined as, in, in Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, training that corrects, molds, or perfects the mental faculties, or moral character. As Christians, we should be pretty familiar with this word discipline because the root of the word discipline happens throughout the New Testament. It's the word disciple. And the word disciple literally means student or learner. So you get the idea behind discipline. The idea behind discipline is that the person you're disciplining is learning. The person that you're disciplining is a student. 
Now, having said that, giving you the definition and, and giving you some illustration in regards to how the word is used in the New Testament, let me share with you a couple of points that are important. First, this means that discipline isn't punishment. Discipline is not punishment. I'm going to say this, and this is I want you to hear with both of your ears when I say this, okay? Discipline does not mean that you embarrass your child. Discipline does not mean that you shame your child. Discipline does not mean that you punish your child in a way that is painful. And discipline does not mean that you're getting even with your child. That is not discipline. Discipline, going back to the root of the word or the definition that I shared with you, discipline has as its purpose correction, molding, and perfection. Now, I'm not going to tell you how to perform discipline in your house. Going back to what I said in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, it's very relevant here. Every single one of your children is different. Now, if we, for example, sent Hannah up to her room by herself, oh, she was happy as a lark. Happy as a lark. We'd go up there, check on her. After, hey, that's it. You are by yourself in your room for the next 30 minutes. We peek our head in there, and she's singing a song, reading a book. Oh, she had, but if we sent Sarah by herself into a room, oh, it crushed her. Oh, it would crush her. Every, every child is different. Every child is different. You need to know what discipline needs to be enacted on your child in order for you to correct them, to mold them, to perfect them, Okay? And don't give me this hogwash about if I discipline my kids and they're not going to love me. No, I'm going to tell you something that you may have never heard before. If you don't discipline your kids, they won't love you. If you discipline your kids, not only will they love you, but they'll respect you. Never put your hands on your children. Never put your hands on your children. You don't want your children ever to take a step back when you put your hands out. If there is a physical discipline that's required, always use something that is light and put it on your leg first. Are you saying you should spank? Of course. Do I, are you serious? Every 10 years, a psychologist comes out and says, you should never spank your children. And those people's kids end up committing suicide or something. I'm not making this up. Go look it up. Dr. Spock started this movement, and his kids were an absolute mess. Never listen to the world. In Proverbs chapter 13, it says, spank your child while there is hope. If you hit them with a the rod, they will not die. That's God's word. Now, I am not saying that every chance you get, you need to spank your child. That is not what I'm saying. In fact, on the contrary, what I am saying is this. If you do it right, you can do it a couple of times, and you'll never have to do it again. Once your kid is 10, 12, don't put your hands on them. Some of your kids at 10 or 12 will flip you upside down. You forfeit the right. You forfeit the right. Now, I'm looking at my friend Al Hernandez. He's got boys. 
His boys are athletic. His boys are strong. If he needs to push up on his sons for something to get them to check, he can do that. But he's not going to do that to his daughter. Right? We're not going to do that to Elisa. She'd probably beat you up too, be honest though. Because <laughs> she's an athlete. You can't catch her anyway. She runs circles around you though. She's fast at track. But here's the, here's the truth, guys. If you do the correcting early, you establish the paradigm. And you never have to do it again. You never have to do it again. Well, how, how soon is too soon? Well, that's entirely up to you. If, if you're on my campus, this is my house. If you're on my campus and you have a toddler and you whip out a chunkletta and you start hitting your toddler, you and I might have phys- a physical altercation. If your child is four and they're completely disrespectful and they're him and hon and everything else and they don't listen or sit down, you need to correct them? I'll say, good for you. But if you do it when it needs to be done early, you will not need to do it later. If you wait six, eight, ten, guys, if you have not disciplined and your kids are that age, just don't do it. Stop. Just don't. Because at this age, you cannot do enough discipline to buy back the years that you've lost. That's called beating. (laughs) And we're not about beating. So if you use, uh, whatever, spatula, a flip-flop, hit yourself, make sure you understand what you're doing, and then say, because you didn't listen to me and you did this, you're getting five on the back of your leg. One, two, three, four, five, it's done. Sit here and think about it, and I'll come get you in a minute. And then you reconcile. Discipline is always followed by reconciliation. You are not shaming your child. You're not embarrassing your child. You never do this in front of people. You never embarrass your kids in front of people. You have to be the bigger party. And you, I know you see this. You see this in the store. You see this in the mall. Oh, don't make me beat you right here in front of everybody. That's not productive. And by the way, just as a quick side note, you never threaten to leave your kids in the store. <laughs> I'm going to leave you here. I'm leaving. If you ain't in the car, I'm going to leave you here. Are you serious? You're not leaving. Just stop. You're forfeiting any opportunity to be taken seriously. So don't threaten them. Own your position. Walk over to your child. Grab their shirt. Let's go. Do your job. That is discipline. What I just did right there is discipline. It is correction and molding. You're not the, jo- you're not the boss here. I'm the boss. So if physical discipline is required, please hear me when I say this. It's entirely up to you. You have to make the decision that's right for your family. But it is not punishment. It's just correction. You know what correction is? Get get back on path. That's all it is. It's not more than that. If it does become more than that, then it is a problem. And why isn't it that? Because listen, our anger, James says in chapter 1, verse 20, our anger doesn't work the righteousness of God. God's anger works righteousness, but mine doesn't. So you never put yourself in the place of God in that regard. I like what Paul Tripp says. He says, our anger and impatience as parents reveals the true condition of our hearts. Like our children, we need the care of our loving Father who doesn't beat us with condemnation, but rather caresses us with his grace. Even when we discipline, it's with grace. Secondly, not only is discipline not punishment, 
But discipline isn't permanent. Discipline isn't punishment, and discipline isn't permanent. Can we, can we just, can we make an agreement here? I'm going long. If somebody needs to go, you can go. I won't get my feelings hurt. Uh, can we say something? I don't know why parents decide to punish their children over periods of time. They put themselves in a place of God. And sometimes they never let their children forget that time when they did that thing with that, over that holiday. Remember that? Don't, don't think I haven't forgotten about that. Don't think I have forgotten about that. Discipline is not permanent. Discipline happens, and then discipline is done. That's it. We're moving on. That's it. It's gone. If you have to correct your child or young people, if you get corrected by your parents, once the correction is done and there's understanding, we're moving on. We're moving on. If discipline is something that has to happen constantly, then we're either missing opportunities or it's not being done correctly. That's another conversation. You can call Patty and set up an appointment. When we discipline our children so that they can see the holiness and the righteousness that is required, not only from God to us, but from us to them. And we have to have standards. We have to have expectations. Inevitably, we might be in agreement in our family or not, but we will all face God in judgment one day. And we have to understand what his expectations of of us are. So sometimes parents ask me this question, why doesn't it stick? Why doesn't it stick? Why do I have to keep doing it? Because you're a parent. That's the reality of the matter. I mean, some of your kids have more sand than others. You know what I mean? I was just talking to somebody today. I don't remember who it was. I think it was Eliane. We were talking about revival happening on college campuses and how in the history of revivals, they so often start on college campuses. And we were talking about how that generation was so passionate. And the point that I made was, yes, they're passionate either that way or this way. And we want them to go this way. Think of some of your kids. Some of you are frustrated. You're exasperated. You've thrown up your hands. You don't know what to do with your kids. And that's because you're looking at it through your own lens. You're not looking at it through God's lens. Look at it this way. Imagine what your child can do. The stubborn, stiff, strong-spirited, sandy one. That kid. Imagine what that kid could do for Jesus if you won their heart for Jesus. Instead of looking at it like a challenge, look at it as an opportunity. Discipline is not permanent, but we will have to parent forever. What you need to understand is this, routine doesn't equal regeneration. Routine doesn't equal regeneration. In other words, just because your children do what you want them to do when they're living under your roof, that's routine, doesn't mean that they're connected with the living God through Jesus. That's regeneration. Those two things are not the same. You're not aiming at just running a barracks. You're aiming at their heart all the time. You're aiming at their heart. So why is discipline important? Because we're not raising children to be dependent on us, but to be dependent on the grace of God. 
You don't want a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old, depending on you. But if you want that, if you have a codependent issue, and that's what you want, an adult who can't live an adult life because they've got to rely on you, don't discipline them. Let them do whatever they want. In 20 years, they're not going anywhere. I guarantee you, they'll be at your house. And if they're not at your house, they'll be at your house financially. It's your responsibility to do what you can while the time is now so that their future and your future will be what God intends it to be. Discipline teaches us and teaches them that they are accountable for themselves, their own decisions and their own actions, and to God for their faith. Your kids need to understand that their relationship with God is not going to be enjoyed through you. They can receive those blessings, but they've got to make that decision themselves. We should not be making people who are lifeless, expectationless, and purposeless. We need to be disciplining our kids in the various stages of life so that they have targets to aim for as we mold them and perfect them. Now, to close, let me say this. Don't eat banana bread without nuts. I'll talk to you after the service. I know you're a part of that anomaly. But on all seriousness, everything has to have its necessary ingredients if it's going to be. And parenting is no different. Gospel parenting requires the ingredients of grace, instruction, forgiveness, and discipline. These are the ingredients that will bless your family. Bless it with love and bless it with the boundaries that keep the evil out and the good within. At the end of the day, we aren't aiming at making nice people. We're aiming at making new people. <laughs> 